Thank you, Joseph. Good morning again to everybody. Good to see everybody, it really is. Good to have some of our travelers back with us and uh, some of those who have been ill back with us. We're thankful for that. And uh, we also always have a great many on our prayer list. And uh, we also have travelers still out there. And so please keep all in your prayers as they travel, keep them safe. Uh, Today starts our winter quarter in Bible classes. We're still in need of a teacher on Sundays for the first, and I'm sorry, for the one and two-year-old class, and a teacher on Wednesday for the three through five-year-old class. Please sign up today if you can and you'd like to do that. And if you have any questions, please do see Diana Grimes. Teacher sign-up sheet is on the table in the foyer. And again, this is a way that, that we can individually and personally serve God. So keep that in mind. Over the last couple of, well, the last three weeks, I've been bringing some lessons that have been rather pointed about our personal response to the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ, about our souls. And so I took two, two times, two Sundays, uh, starting about three weeks ago, to ask the question, are you neglecting your salvation? And looking at different ways by which we can neglect our salvation. And then last week, I followed that up by talking uh, about uh, the, the, the response of so many people to coming to understand, I need to change my life, but they're reluctant to do so. They kept putting it off. They keep procrastinating, so to speak. And so I asked the question, who will stop waiting first, you or God? Because somewhere along the line, Either you're going to stop waiting and you're going to come to him through Jesus Christ, the only way to be able to come to him, John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, or God will stop waiting on you. And either your time will be up on this earth, or maybe God will come to the point where he will determine, because he's all-knowing, and he can see within our within our hearts, within our soul, within our lives, where our real mindset is, he may come to the point where he says, I know that person will never turn. And God could stop waiting in that way as well. Well, I want to <clears throat> shift a little bit this morning, but still really stop and ask ourselves a personal question here. Where do I go to find the best source for developing good self-esteem. Where is that source? We stop and think about how in our culture right now, in our society, in our country, I don't know how it is in other countries, such as in India where Brother Samson is. I know they, they suffer the potential, especially within the Lord's Church, for a great deal more open persecution than we do in this country. And in other parts of the world, it's maybe even worse in some places. But I, I don't know. I don't live there. I don't know what it's like there. I, I, I can't read the kind of the lives of the people there. But I do experience what it's like here. And, and I know that when it comes to a feeling of self-worth or self-esteem, we have turned, in our cultural mindset, we have turned things upside down, backwards, inside out. And so esteem, when you think about that, it has to do with opinions or value or regard that a person has for something or somebody. Now we might say, 
here's this person over here. Oh yes, I know them. I, I, I hold that person in high esteem. I value them highly. I regard them highly. Or we might say, here is a work over here of some kind. Maybe it's a benevolent organization or maybe it's the Lord's church. And we might say, I hold that work in high esteem. In other words, I value it. I, I have high regard for that particular work, whatever it is. Now that's the idea of esteem on a general basis. But then it comes to self-esteem, and that's where our question is. Where do I go to find a source for good self-esteem? And self-esteem has to do with how a person regards himself or herself. Where, where am I? What am I? How, you know, do I value this or not? Well, again, our present culture pressures us to base our self-worth, which is another way of expressing self-esteem, on shallow, superficial things. We say, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, things such as physical appearance, or financial status, or professional accomplishments, or social standing. And so we say, well, that person is, boy, that person's really something. There, that's a valuable individual, or they, we need to hold that person in high regard. Why? Well, because he holds a high political office or because he has really worked his way up to a high position within his business. Or, and we could name a whole list of other, in our minds, qualifications for looking and saying that that person has really accomplished it. They really are a person that, that we can esteem. And so we're conditioned on an individual personal basis to say, okay, if, if I have not finished college, or maybe I have not finished high school, I'm not worth much. I just don't have much value. Or maybe I have not been able to progress at all within my job. I'm right where I was at that entry-level position when I got into this position, when I got this job five years ago, and I don't see myself being able to work up, I, I, I must not amount to much. Or someone might say, you know, I need a job, but all I can get is something at Burger King or McDonald's, and I'm not going to work there. I'm not going to flip burgers. Well, that is a position of integrity. You're working for a living. But some people would think that doesn't amount to anything, I, or this is all I can get. I don't, I don't amount to anything. Think about, think about how emotionally and psychologically our nation, our culture again is suffering. The people, so many of them. You say, well, what, what do you mean again? Have you ever known anybody, and probably most of us have known somebody who was anorexic or they were, they were bulimic. They, they, they suffered from bulimia, which is an eating disorder that is probably almost always connected with depression. And the problem is they look in the mirror and they may be a shapely girl and apparently the impression I get is, is most of those who suffer with this disorder, this eating disorder, are, are females. And they look in the mirror, and even though somebody else would look at them and say, you are so attractive, they see themselves as being grossly overweight. And so they, they punish themselves by starving themselves, and then the reverse of that, because they're so hungry, they'll go on an eating binge and stuff themselves and then feel deeply guilty and then purge that. And they'll do that over and over again. 
And that ultimately causes physical problems that can ultimately lead to their dying because of the physical stresses it puts on their body in different, in different areas. And that's unfortunate. And why are they driven to that? Because they have low self-esteem. Suicide. It seems from the reports I keep hearing on news reports that suicide seems to be going up in our nation, at least in some circles. And something that was always striking to me, the first time I, I read it or heard it, and I keep hearing and, and, and seeing the same statistics basically over and over again as I, as I research it or listen to reports. Do you realize that between 15 and 24-year-olds, between 15 and 24-year-olds, now you're talking about, to me, I, I think, why would those, those kids have any problems that are that significant that they might contemplate taking their lives, they've got their whole life ahead of them. They're young, they're virile, and so on. But between 15 and 24-year-olds, nearly 20, uh, uh, suicide is the second highest cause of death within that age group. Between 15 and 24-year-olds, suicide is the second highest cause of death. And now this is a statistic I want to share with you that ought to stagger us as parents and grandparents. 20% of all high school students seriously consider suicide. Now stop and think about what 20% is. That's one of every five. One of every five high school students seriously contemplate suicide. That ought to shake us to our very souls as parents and grandparents. How many kids do you have in your family? How many kids do your kids know? They're buddies, they're friends. Now, what, why is that? Why, why suicide? Why would somebody resort to that? Low self-esteem. They don't, they don't think they matter. And where does that come from? Because of our cultural mindset. We have all these superficial surface level things that we latch onto and says, that makes you worth something. Your physical appearance, but if you're too tall or you're too short or you're too heavy or you're too thin or you've got too much acne or if your nose is too big, like mine, you know, or, or if you, you don't have a full head of hair, thankful I don't have that problem. Whatever it is, we say, now that's it. Or you don't have enough degrees on your sleeve as far as high school, college, maybe master's degree, so on. You don't really amount to anything. And so we've bought into that, and we come away and we think, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't matter. I'm not worth anything. And so then those people resort to all kinds of self-destructive behaviors, alcoholism, drug addiction, theft, crime of different kinds, and even suicide. Well, these sources, again, are highly superficial, surface level, and basing our self-esteem primarily on such as these can ultimately lead us to become unhappy on an ongoing basis, unfulfilled, dissatisfied, empty, and self-destructive depression. So where can we go? 
where can we go to find the basis for good, fulfilling self-esteem? And it comes back to what we've been talking about over the last three Sundays. Are you neglecting your salvation? Who's going to stop waiting first? You or God? Our self-worth does not lie in our American culture. What we have decided really matters. You're wearing the right clothes with the right tags. You go to the right places. You run with the right folks. That's not the basis for real self-esteem. But rather, God and Christ, our relationship with God our Father, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the source for meaningful self-esteem. Appreciate Joseph reading a moment ago, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. Now behold, one came and said to him, that is to Jesus, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, as I said before, Jesus might have been using something of a play on words here because there was a statement in the culture of that day that was simple, two words, the good. And that in the mind of the speaker and the one who listened to it identified God as the good, the only one. God is the good. And so Jesus might have been asking the young man and those who might have been surrounding him and listening to what that conversation back and forth was, was going on, he might have been saying, why do you call me good? Do you, do you believe that I am God the Son, the Lord and Savior? And that's a possibility, a possible understanding of that particular text. But then he goes on and he says, there is only one who is good, that is God. So our goodness is not based upon the things, and especially the material things, or even those accomplishments that are strictly pertaining to this world, that's not where our real goodness comes from. Jesus said, if you want to enter, the li uh, enter into life, keep the commandments. Follow God's teachings. Live before him according to his will. Now, I want to look at the basic or kind of uh, concise answer to this question, where do I go to find a source for real self-esteem? How can I feel good about myself? How can I feel that I'm worth something? Well, first, you're special because God created you in his image, in his likeness, with a soul, and that's unique from everything else that he created so that you can look forward to living with him forever in heaven. Now think about that. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the God said, let us make man in our image. If you read through that creation account in Genesis chapter 1, he did not say that about anything else that he created, not even any other life form. And he created everything that we see alive in the world today. Only when he came to man did he say, let us make man in our image in our likeness, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Why do you think he gave mankind dominion over everything else that he had created in this world? Because he created us in his own image, with a spiritual essence within our physical presence. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Have you ever thought about you've been made in the likeness of God? Don't listen to people who tell you you're not worth anything. Don't let, don't, don't let that cultural mindset that's pressuring upon you to conform to society, to conform to the culture of this day in our land, saying you've got to do this, you've got to be that kind of person, you've got to take part in those kinds of activities. Don't let that beat you down. You are created in the image of God after his likeness. Look at what Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens. In other words, the creator of everything that we see all throughout the universe. Lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. And then the revelation. As John wrote in Revelation 4 and verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. They exist and were created. You are there because God wanted you to be there. He created you in his image after his likeness. Now, I said, God and Christ are the source for meaningful self-esteem. Christ was right there in the creation, right there with God, taking part in the creation with him. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. And verse 14 clears any question that anybody might have as to the identity of the word in, in verse 1. Christ, the Son of God. So he was right there taking part in the creation along with God the Father and God the Spirit. In John chapter three and, or James chapter 3 and verse 9, James put it in an interesting way. He said, with it, and he's speaking about the tongue and the abuse of the tongue, he says, with it, we bless God, our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Interesting word. Probably don't use that much around the kitchen table on a daily basis, do you? But it means, again, the same thing. In the likeness of God, in the image of God, in the similitude of God. Think how God created you. Special from everything else that he created. You and only you he created in his own image. Look at your, think at your worth based upon how God created you. And this is what gives you status above all of the other life forms on the earth. All of the plants and all of the animals and so on. So you're important. You can have proper self-esteem, and I'm not talking about arrogant self-satisfaction. I'm talking about recognizing who you are and what you are based upon how God created you. You have self-worth based on that right off the bat. Second, God loves you so much. Let me say that again. God loves you so much 
that he sent his son to die for you. Of course, that familiar verse of scripture, maybe the most familiar in all of the Bible. John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world, loved the world, that includes you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you so much that he sent his son to that cross to die for you. Now, wait a minute, preacher. He sent his son to the cross to die for all of humanity for all time. Make the personal application. You're part of all humanity for all time. He sent his son to the cross to die for you. Take that personally and recognize how that makes you worth value in God's eyes. And look at how the apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the, what, the people in the right social clubs? The people who are the CEOs and the biggest corporations in the world? The people who hold the highest political offices? The people who are the <clears throat> professors with the most degrees on their sleeves in the most prestigious universities all around the world? That's not what it says. When we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will someone die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, toward you, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That makes you worth something, doesn't it? He sent his son from the throne room in heaven into this world in human form to go to that cross. And that was always his ultimate mission, to go to that cross and die for you. You're worth that much in God's eyes. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, enemies of God because of our sin, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Saved by his life. The incredible thing that Jesus stated, and I know he was standing before the apostles or, or with the apostles on that night, the night of his betrayal, the next day he would be nailed to that cross, but his statement it goes far beyond just those 12 men who were with him on that occasion in that upper room. John 15 and verse 13, he told them, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Yes, they were his friends on a personal basis, but he died for you. You might say, now wait a minute, you don't know what I've done in life. No, I don't, but God does. I've done terrible things. God knows that. And that's why he sent his son to die on that cross for you because of the terrible things you've done. 
He knew you needed forgiveness. He, needed you, he knew you needed redemption. He knew that you needed a way out of that lifestyle that you've been living that has been so ungodly. And he took matters into his own hands. And so did Christ. Willingly, lovingly went to that cross. And 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, he became sin for you. Not sinful, but he bore your sins in his own person on that, body, on that cross. You're special. You're worth something. A lot. God sent his son to die for you. Third, if you're letting him or if you will let him, God's still working on you. You're a work in progress. In Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 28, the Apostle Paul said, we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. Now that's an ongoing process. To those who are the called according to his purpose, if you'll come to God through Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in him openly as your Lord and Savior and God's Son, and surrendering to him in baptism for the remission of your sins, the blood that he shed on that cross for you will cleanse you of all of that guilt. You will be reborn, John 3, verses 3 through 5. You will be made a new creation from a spiritual perspective. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, you will get a start over, a new beginning. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you think about that? God wants to adopt you as his child into his family? Is that incredible or what? That says you're worth something. He loves you that much and he's still working on you. Did you know that God has prepared good works for you to do? Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2 and verse 14, who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, you. He wants you to be one of his own special people, zealous for good works. Well, I know the church is supposed to do such and the church is supposed to do such and such and this and that and... You personally, God has good works for you personally to do. Not everybody can lead singing. Appreciate Eric doing that this morning. Not everybody can stand in the pulpit and deliver a sermon. I thank God continually, literally, continually for blessing me to be able to do that good work. Not everybody can serve in all of the same ways, but God don't make no junk he created you to be able to do certain good works. You're special in that way. And let me tell you, you, to be able to do the good works that God wants you to do, you likely don't have to be taller or shorter or thinner or, thinner or heavier. You don't have to have a normal nose. You don't have to have better shaped ears. You don't have to have more hair or bigger muscles or more shapeliness to accomplish what God has prepared you to be able to do. 
You as you are right now have unique qualities and abilities and opportunities to serve God that nobody else can. Have you thought about that? He's prepared you in that way. You know people I don't know. You have influence with people I may never have influence with. But you have opportunities to be able to serve God, to be able to do those good works that he has prepared you to be able to do that I cannot do. And maybe not most of the other people you know in your life will be able to do. You as you are, are unique in these ways. And that makes you special. That serves as a basis for the right kind of self-esteem. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, we read, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you think you're too bad to be good? Jesus died on that cross for you. So you can be good before God. God can count you as being good before him through Christ. If you will come to him through Christ, your Lord and Savior. Verses 24 through 26, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a substitute, a cover for us by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience with you, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? If you will come to God through Jesus, God is ready to count you forgiven of whatever it is you think you've been too bad to be forgiven of. He's ready to count you righteous, good before him through Christ. True self-esteem should be based not on what a person is primarily, but, what a, on, a per, but on what a person can become through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about why you look down on yourself. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. Why do you look down on yourself? Why do you think you're no good? Why do you think you're not worth anything? Why have you given up on life? Oh man, who are you to reply against God? God created you. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me thus? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? With whatever inabilities you might think you have, God still has placed abilities within you. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now I ask you again, why do you look down on yourself? What is it that makes you think you're not worth anything? What is it that makes you think you're unforgivable? God sent his son to that cross to die so that you could be forgiven. What then shall we say to these things? You don't need to listen to anybody else putting you down. 
if you're doing right before God. And don't look down on yourself and give up and write yourself off because God's waiting for you to come to him. Focus on God's strength in the face of your weakness. The apostle Paul had something wrong with him. He called it a thorn in the flesh. He didn't even specify what that meant. Some physical kind of problem apparently. And he said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How am I strong? Through Christ. When I am weak, then I am strong. I knew two little people many, many years ago and for many, many years, Alvin and Sandy Morrison. I believe they actually, I think they came and worshiped with us one time. Alvin was a traveling salesman. He had no hands, he had hooks for hands. He told me one time he had three different signature, signatures registered with the bank, one with his hook, one with his mouth, and I watched him sign papers with his mouth, and one with his toes. He could sign, he didn't let his physical infirmities handicaps stop him from living life. He ran a sales crew across, I'd say, at least a third of this country, perhaps. And he taught people the gospel along the way. Paul said, what? Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And God can use you, even in your self-perception that I'm not that educated. I'm, I'm kind of handicapped myself. I'm shut in most of the time. Well, can you make phone calls? Can you send cards out? Those are just a couple of you know, random suggestions, but God can use you in ways you might not even be contemplating. Paul ultimately summarized it in Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God's offering you self-esteem to say, I just want to serve God however he wants me to. I keep praying that prayer. I just want to serve God however he wants me to. Now, do you need to come to Christ? He extended the invitation to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You might say, I, I, I just don't see how I can do it, how I can... Let God do it through you. And with his help, by his power, 
his guidance, his self-assurance, you're capable of amazing things. Amazing in your own mind at the very least. If you need to become a Christian, being baptized into Christ, don't let yourself doubts, don't let worldly people stop you from taking that step. We're ready to baptize you into Christ this morning. If you need to study about it more, just ask us. We'll make that happen. If you need the prayers of the church for whatever situation it is in your life, maybe just for strength and confidence and encouragement, we'll pray with you and for you. If you need to come, come right now as we stand together and sing.